I've got to tell you, uh, when I was preparing this message uh, on what we're going to talk about today, it was a really hard message for me to prepare for a few reasons. One reason uh, is that, honestly, I'm not very good at what we're going to talk about today. All right, and, and I say that uh, as, as a minor reason because there's actually a lot of things that we talk about from the Bible that I'm not very good at. So this is just added to that list. But the other reason um, that made this topic today kind of hard is because there's not one particular passage that captures what we're talking about today. Um, there were some passages that I thought about using. I thought about using um, a, a passage out of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 2.24, that says this. It says, There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. So this idea of eating and drinking and finding joy is a gift from God. And, 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 and that was a good passage, but we're not really talking about eating and drinking today, although this is the time of year. If we're going to do it, this is a great time of year to do it. Uh, but that one didn't capture what I was looking for. Then I thought about going to the New Testament, and there's a book, I mean, there's a, a book called 1 Corinthians, and, and a verse in there, 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, so whether, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, eating and drinking. Not talking about that today, but if, I, if we did, there's, I know a couple of great verses I could use. But what I loved about this is it kind of captures this idea of whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. And as we've talked about before, this idea of glory means weight, right? That, that when you do something to the glory of God, it means you allow him to carry the weight of what that is. That's what glory means. It has this heaviness to it. And, and so that whatever we do, we realize the weight is on God to do that. And, and that would be great, but that doesn't fully capture what I wanted to talk about today. It's just not specific enough. You see, we're in the middle of a Christmas series called Christmas to, to Remember. And, and we arrived at this series by asking people this very simple question. What's your favorite Christmas memory? And as, sorry, Siri just turned on. That's odd. There we go. As we, as we talked about what your favorite Christmas, that'd be fun to ask Siri what her favorite Christmas memory is, wouldn't it? Um, but as we talked about this favorite Christmas memory, these themes kind of came out. And these themes emerged as people shared what their favorite Christmas memory was. There, there, were, there were themes of rest. That, that in your favorite Christmas memory, the food's been cooked, the presents have been opened, and there's this time where you're just kind of kicking back and relaxing. Now, the dishes may not be done, but that's okay. It's this time of rest. And then, and then so we saw also one of the themes was that contentment was there. So, so not only was there no work to be done uh, that was rest, um, all was right in the world. There was contentment. And also, what we're going to be talking about today was something else lodged in these memories uh, that hopefully, if we implement, because our goal was if we could take these themes of these memories and stretch them out for the entire season, you would have a Christmas to remember. Right? And so if our entire season of Christmas was filled with rest, if our entire season of Christmas was filled with contentment, then it'd be a Christmas to remember. But today's is also part of that. And today we're talking about play. And you see, in the best Christmas memories, at least in many of them, there was this element of play. 
families were gathered together and they were playing card games around a table. Uh, they were playing board games. They were playing out in the snow like, like we had last week. What I love about this is God is so fun that y- you got to experience the lab before the lecture this week. Right? I was going to teach on play last week, but church got canceled. And so we said, y'all go play. Enjoy the snow. Enjoy being a family together. Enjoy being snowed in. Just enjoy being together. And so that's part of what happens over this Christmas season. But, but what I've learned as I, was, as I was preparing for this message that play isn't just essential uh, to the, that Christmas memory. And, and, and I hope it doesn't just last this Christmas season, but play has got these incredibly positive effects to us when we play. If you're a kid who plays, um, this is what play does in children. It increases vocabulary. It increases problem-solving skills. It enhances creativity. It helps with math processing. But play in childhood is kind of expected, right? Because they don't have work like we do, right? They don't have those dishes piling up in the sink. They don't have your boss calling you after hours, right? They don't have work. But listen... Look at what play does in adults, even with all of that, with that work, with that stress. If we take time to play, here's, here's what studies say play does in adults, that it can relieve stress, right? How many of you need some stress relief during the holiday season? Yeah. It can improve brain function. Have you ever bought a present and forgot where you put it before you wrapped it? Play a game. Apparently that'll help. It'll enhance relationships. It'll keep up energy. And in a work environment, for work environments where play is a value, and I don't mean play instead of work, I mean play with work. For, for, for places of work where there is play, studies show that it actually increases productivity to take some time out and play. This sounds great, doesn't it? But remember when I started this message, I said this topic was very hard for me to do. And so as I was preparing this, this question kept coming to my mind. Why is it hard for me to play? Why do I have a hard time taking a break to just play? Why is it hard for me to stop and play a game? As a matter of fact, I asked Seth once. I have a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. And and, uh, we were doing this study called Raising a Modern Day Night. Me and some other guys were. And it's about how to help your 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 boys grow into men. And, And one of the things it asked you to do in this study is to sit down with your teenager or preteen and ask them this one question. How can I be a better dad for you? Not how can I be a better dad for your brother. How can I be a better dad for you? So I asked Seth this question. And he's 17 now. He was 14, 15 then. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, I wish you would play more. And he goes, "And, and I know it's hard. It was the sweetest thing. He, 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 he understood my life. And he goes, you know, typically when we play games, we play on Saturday nights. He said, and I know in your week, that's probably the worst night of the week for you to play because you're getting everything ready for Sunday and you're doing all this stuff for Sunday. He goes, but I just wish you would play more. And even with that very sweet um, admonition from him, I still have a hard time playing. 
Anybody else experience this? Anybody else have a hard time putting work down, putting stuff down to just play? I remember when my kids were little, I I struggled to get down on the floor with them and play blocks. Part of it was because all they wanted to do is stack them and knock them down. That's very unproductive. Right? It was, it was hard for me, and it, and it still is hard for me to play. And by play, I don't mean just resting or watching TV, kind of tuning out or even reading. I mean, by play, I mean assigning time to stop work and actively engage in a joyful experience. And maybe this sounds great, but maybe... For you, just like it is for me, it's, it's kind of hard to set aside time to just play. And, and, and by play, here's what I mean. I mean setting aside time to enjoy joy is what we're going to say. That's what play is. Play is setting aside a time to enjoy joy. And that's what makes unique different than any other thing. What makes play unique is that that is the only outcome of joy. So whether it's playing in the snow or playing a guard game, playing board games, doing a dance party at your house. I know some people do that. They just crank up the music and say, dance party. And everybody starts dancing. The only reason you do that isn't for exercise. It's not for to get your heart rate up. It's to experience joy. That's what play is. It's setting aside a time to experience joy. And along with that comes peace and contentment. Here's why I think it's hard for me to play. And I'm wondering if it might be the same reason for you. And it's this. You see, I don't play because I don't understand the gospel in that moment. And we're going to see what I mean by that. Because, you see, what we're going to do is a little different than what we normally do. Normally, if you're new to fellowship, what we like to do here is work our way through books of the Bible or work our way through a section of a Bible or even work our way through a verse in the Bible. But this time today, we're going to work our way through the entire Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And and don't freak out. We will get done in time. All right. Um, uh, We're going to kind of I'm going to paint a big picture for you of what happens in the Bible of the story of the Bible. And when we see the story of the Bible and we see how play interacts with that, I think we're all going to realize the same thing that I came to realize, that when I don't want to set work down, when I don't want to set those stresses down and and I just want to kind of plow through, that the essence of that is because I don't understand the gospel in that moment. I'm not living out the gospel in that moment. So kick back, relax, relax. I'm not going to send you to a page number in your Bible. Just listen to the story of the Bible. Because, see, the Bible starts in a garden, right? If you open your Bible and go to page one in Genesis, it starts in a, in a garden where God created this garden. He created the universe around that garden. He created the earth around that garden. And in that garden, he placed two people. He placed a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And in that garden was productive work for them to do. They got to name the animals and, and take care of the animals. They got to name the plants and take care of the plants. There was, there was food for them to eat. There was stuff for them to do. Uh, it was warm there, at least I hope, because they didn't have any clothes on. And so it was this very pleasant place to be. But what made the garden very unique was not what was there, but who was there. 
Because also in that garden that God created was God. And the scriptures say that God would, would show up and walk with Adam and Eve. And as the hymn says, he would walk with them and he would talk with them. And there was this relationship between God and Adam and Eve, between God and man and woman. And that's what made this place unique because in their relationship there was togetherness. Right? They were together. They, there was contentment. There was joy. There was peace. You see, this garden was a place of contentment, joy, and peace. That's what this garden was. But something happened in that garden. Satan, who we get introduced to as a serpent, he saw that togetherness between God and, and man and woman. And he saw that peace and he saw that contentment and he saw that joy there. And he got jealous. As, as if you study Satan, you realize he's a very jealous being. He's a very jealous thing. And, and he wanted to destroy what God had between him and Adam and Eve and his, between his creation. And so he introduced sin into the garden. He introduced sin to Eve and to Adam. And what sin did when they disobeyed God, sin broke the relationship between God and his people. Sin separated God and Adam and Eve like they had never been separated before, like they had never known before. Sin eventually is what made them have to leave this garden that God had created for them. But just as soon as it happened, when God shows up, and he's explaining the consequences of that sin. And he tells, he tells Adam what it means for him. He tells Eve what it means for her. And then he looks at Satan as he's telling the consequences of what he did in the garden. There's this whisper of this good news. There's this whisper of the gospel right at the beginning. So Genesis chapter 3. So we're only three chapters in. I promise we're going to go faster. Three chapters in, you have the, this garden, and you have the fall, and then you have uh, what theologians call the proto-evangelion, the first gospel, Genesis 3.15. The first whisper of how God is going to fix everything that Satan tempted and destroyed. He was going to fix the separation. And he looks at Satan, God does, and he says this to that serpent. He says, he... This is Genesis 3.15. He, so it's a singular male coming. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So there's this whisper right from the beginning that there's going to be a man who comes that makes everything right that Satan destroyed. And what was whispered at the beginning of the Bible is shouted later in the Bible. And if you turn to the New Testament, what was a hint at the beginning becomes obvious, and his name is Jesus. Because as Jesus was walking and, and, and leading his disciples and telling the world about him in ways that, that would draw some people to him and repel other people to him, he, 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 uh, from him, he said this in John 14, 6. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, Jesus was saying, listen, there was, there was a garden and there was a relationship in that garden and there was this place called the garden that was destroyed. And the only way to get that relationship back with God, the only way to get that garden back with God is through me, is what Jesus said. And we know what happens. Jesus on the cross will crush the head of Satan because that's where that sin was fixed. And that's where Satan's power was crushed. And Satan will strike his heel because Jesus dies on that cross. But we know how the story goes. On, 
It's what we celebrate at Easter is that Jesus rose from the dead. And when he was resurrected, it proved everything that he said was true. When a person raises from the dead, you pay attention to what they say. And so Jesus rose from the dead to restore what sin broke. And through him and through him alone can we experience this garden-type relationship with God, where we walk with God and where we talk with God, where his presence is in us. The scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so, so Jesus fixed that relationship with God. But if you notice, our Bible doesn't end when Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to prove that everything he said was true. If, if it did, there would be one element that's still missing. Because see, see, the work that Jesus did on the cross destroyed the power of sin. And so the work is done, but it has not been fully realized yet because there's something else coming. The relationship with God, the garden-type relationship with God has been restored through Jesus. And when you put your faith in him, when you believe in him, and you believe that this good news applies to you, the, the Spirit indwells you, and, and, and sin no longer has its power over you. And you get to experience a garden-type relationship with God, but you don't experience the garden yet. You see, we, we're, we're not in a place where we physically and tangibly can see God and walk with him. You see, the garden relationship has been restored, but the garden hasn't been restored yet. The work is done. It hasn't been fully realized. So if you jump to the end of your Bible, there's this book called Revelation. See, I told you we'd go fast. See how I'm speeding things up? If you go fast forward to your Bible, to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is, is written by this guy named John, and God gave him a vision of what was coming in the future so he could, he, he could see ahead of what was coming. And we get to see how Jesus restores the garden. He restores the place where our contentment, joy, and peace are experienced, not just in a relationship with God, but in the very presence of God. In this book, Jesus shows how he will deal this final blow, where the work that he did on the cross and the resurrection is finally realized for all to see. In Revelation 20.10, it says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. And so not only is the power of sin done, now the person who tempted Adam and Eve is done. And so not only does sin not have power anymore, Satan is gone and out of the picture but that still doesn't restore the garden right and so John in chapter 21 of Revelation says this he says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth this one the one we're in right now had passed away and the sea was no more and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride ordained for her husband. In other words, this city looks good. And it's the new garden. And look who's there. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, where God lives, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So not only is the garden relationship restored, one day the garden place will be restored. And all of that because of what Jesus has done. For you, for me, 
to fix what sin broke. See, one day things will be back to the way they were. Actually, they'll be better than the way they were because it's not just Adam and Eve that get to live in the garden now. It's us. It's me. It's you. It's every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be there is what what the scriptures say. And it's you and me with God. And it's not just a relationship with God. It's the very presence of God we get to experience. In Revelation, it talks about how there will be no shadows in this new city. Because the light of God is everywhere. His presence is tangible. That's what Jesus is going to do one day. And that's our gospel. That's our good news. That Jesus made a way for us to experience this contentment, joy, and peace found in a relationship with God. For those who believe in Jesus, that Jesus has restored all this. And Jesus will one day restore the garden for that relationship too. But what in the world does all this have to do with play? Right? Like that's a great picture of our gospel. But what in the world does that have to do with play? Like I said at the beginning, play is a time that we set aside time to enjoy joy. And I said the reason I think it's hard for me to play sometimes is that sometimes I don't believe the gospel is true in that moment. I act like Jesus didn't do all that fixing. Right? Jesus didn't do all that work. And so what that means is that I act like Jesus hasn't restored my relationship with God. I don't have time to play. I've got, I'm, I've got to be busy making God happy. I act like Jesus won't one day restore the place of the garden. The place where God and I will dwell together so I keep my head down and just work. But here's what I'm learning. When I play, when I set aside time to enjoy joy, that that's the only outcome is to experience joy. By God's incredible grace and mercy, what that does is I'm actually experiencing a little bit of that garden relationship and a little bit of that garden place that God has done in restoring the relationship and that God will do one day in this new Jerusalem, in this new heavens and new earth, this new garden that we get to be in. Because both of those, that garden relationship and that garden, are places that are marked by peace and joy and contentment. And when I play, when I set aside time to enjoy joy, play gives you a little taste of heaven. It allows me to look back on what Jesus did and look forward to what he will do and experience that joy, peace, and contentment that can only come from knowing and believing in and living in the gospel. That Jesus restored that garden relationship and he will restore that garden one day. We get a taste of it. Now I heard this great story one time, I think, you know, I've got all these stories that kind of backlog in my head. And so sometimes I think of one that's great for a sermon, but I cannot remember where I heard it for the life of me. So it's sometimes hard to give credit for it. I don't think C.S. Lewis said this one. That's usually my go-to because he said everything in such a beautiful way. I think this one actually came from a pastor at Fellowship Memphis called Brian Loritz. And he was talking about he and the conversation his dad, Crawford Loritz, had. And uh, Brian was a uh, young, uh, a teenager, I think, about that time, maybe a preteen, as, as he was recounting the story. 
And, and he said he had signed up for a sport um, that seemed really interesting at the beginning, but as he got into the season, he really didn't want to play the sport anymore. And he tried to think of a gazillion excuses why he shouldn't play that sport anymore, right? It was, it was too much work. Um, it was too hard on him. He didn't really understand the game. There were all kinds of reasons why he didn't want to play. Now, us, we can think of a gazillion reasons why we don't have time to play, right? And even when we are playing, we can think of a gazillion, a gazillion reasons why not to be actively present in that moment and play, right? We got other things in our head. That's right where Brian was. And so his dad, who's also a pastor and has been a pastor for a very long time, and, and uh, one of the guys that he mentors, mentors me, and so I feel like I learned a lot from Crawford just from uh, somebody else that he has taught a lot to. And Crawford looked at his son, Brian, and he said, you know, he listened to all these excuses for a while. He said, Let me, let's just narrow this down for a little bit. He said, he said Brian, um, who paid for you to sign up for this sport? Who paid for your uniform? Who paid for your clothes to go to practice in? Who pays for the gas to take you from home to school to the field and back home again? Who pays for the food for you to eat out in when the game's over? Who, who pays for all that? And Brian said he kind of looked down at his feet and looked up at his dad, and his dad, you pay for it all. He goes, that's right. He goes, here's the new rule. If I pay, you play. That's the rule. Because by me paying for this, it gives you the ability to just play. So you go play because I pay. You see, I think for us, that same rule applies. I pay, you play. Because we have somebody who paid, didn't we? We have somebody who's taken all the work on them. When Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection, he paid for you and me to experience this garden-type relationship with God and to one day experience the garden again with God and to walk with God and to talk with God. You see, for me, Saturday night game time is what's hard because I'm thinking about y'all. I'm thinking about standing up here and teaching God's word. I'm thinking about all your eyeballs looking right at me. Right? And the temptation is, I've got to get this right. I've got to work, and I've got to work hard. Although my sermon's already written, I mean, I usually have this thing written and ready to speak by Thursday. The work is done. It's just me on Saturday night running through my head and feeling this weight on my shoulders that I can't let y'all down. Here's the reality, though, of what Jesus does. Your hearts, I have no power over that whatsoever. I could stand up here and give you the best sermon you've ever heard, and it accomplishes nothing. It is God who works on your heart. It is God who works on my heart. He's the one who does the work. He's the one who will do the work. He's the one that is doing the work. So I can play a card game with my kid on Saturday night for 20 minutes. And that weight can be on Jesus, not on me. Because your hearts are in his hands, not mine. 
Now, not too many of y'all stand up here and give messages. So that doesn't apply to y'all. But do y'all feel that same stress when it comes time to play? Are there things on your shoulders that should get done instead of playing? Because that stuff is the stuff that Jesus holds in his hands too. So, you might be saying, Fred, because I'm sure you're talking to me in your head, this play thing isn't just a Jesus-only thing. Everybody gets to play. As a matter of fact, I got this guy at work who doesn't know Jesus, and he plays way too much. Yes, experiencing joy is God's grace to everyone. Everyone on this earth gets an opportunity to experience joy and can set aside time to do that. It is a common grace thing is the term for that. But here's the deal. Have you ever tasted something that tasted good, but it had this flavor in it that you didn't know what it was? Like you taste it and you're like, mm, that's, mm, what, what is that? And so you give a taste of it to the person sitting next to you and they go, oh yeah, that's, that's cardamom is what that is. My grandmother makes this. I love this stuff. You see, experience helps you know the secret sauce. So yes, everybody in play gets to experience joy. But we as followers of Christ know what that secret sauce is. That it is the gospel that allows us to be able to enjoy play for the, for the sheer fact of being able to enjoy joy because we know that our relationship with God isn't based upon us nor is that future garden based on us that Jesus has done the work. You see, this gospel, this good news isn't just about um, uh, it is about what Jesus has done that's available to everyone and it's simply saying yes and when you do when you do you realize that you can play because Jesus paid. And I want to show you a picture. This is a Nerf gun. Okay? Now, here's what's great about this Nerf gun. Um, there is a Nerf gun like this or similar to this in every office in this building of our staff. Right? Nick uh, brilliantly bought everybody a Nerf gun. Actually, there's two in Amy's office. Um, uh, she thinks she's Laura Croft, I don't know. But, um, uh, but, 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 but she's got two in her office. And what happens in the middle of a work day, you could get a text on your phone that says, uh, Nerf gun war in 10 minutes. Be ready. Or you can get a, a text message that says, capture the flag, flag's in the worship center, good luck finding it. If you get shot, go back to your office, wait 10 seconds and try again. Right? And in 10 minutes, a Nerf gun war is going to break out in this building somewhere. So if by chance you do happen to see a Nerf bullet, just put it on the pew when you leave and we'll pick it up. Why? Because in our line of work, and I think this is the same in your line of work, it's real easy for us to forget that God is actually the one that does the work. We get to participate in the work that he does. And sometimes we carry this weight on us. We're like, if we don't do this, then this, 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 and this, this, this won't happen. You know what? You can take 10 minutes and play. You can take 10 minutes and get a little taste of heaven. You can take 10 minutes and set aside time to enjoy joy. You see, when we play, we remember all the work that God has done and is doing, and we look forward to the work that he's going to do. And so, 
for this week, this is kind of the best application to a message ever, right? You had the lab last week where you got to play in snow. And so what happens is we gave you a couple of hours to go play. We're not going to do that this week, right? Unless it snows again, Uh, which, by the way, the forecast looks nice and clean, so we're good. But the application for this week, what, what I'd love to see all of us do is to set aside some time to enjoy joy. And to, and to do that as a taste of what Jesus has done to experience the work that has been paid and a taste of the, of, of the garden that will come, to enjoy joy. And so this week, let's set aside some time to play. Let's pray.